Well, a few of you may have seen that as I was uh, preparing to preach, as Pastor Don is away with Nancy, still some vacation, that I had posted on my Facebook page uh, that I was going to preach from a verse that was described by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and maybe some of you haven't heard of him, but he was a great evangelical pastor and leader uh, just of not that long ago and uh, really a recognized Christian leader. And this is the way he described the verse that I wanted to preach from this morning. We come here to one of the great, striking, and outstanding verses in the Bible. There are some verses which have been used by the Spirit in an unusual and extraordinary manner. And of course he says, of course, every verse of the Bible is inspired, but he feels like this one, he goes on to say, I venture to say that it is one of the most important and pivotal verses. That is so because it contains one of the clearest definitions found in the New Testament as to what exactly it means to be a Christian. So I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 17. That's the verse that Lloyd-Jones was talking about, and that's the verse that for a long time I've thought in kind of a similar way. This verse really says very clearly what it means to be, become and the, to be a Christian. It's not the whole story, but it's an essential foundational part of it, and I think the part that most often gets left out or at least minimized today. And so Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. You can tell from the beginning of the chapter that he's writing to all of them. So this isn't describing just like the most devoted among them. He's writing to all of them when he says this. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, and so we pause to notice that not only does this verse describe what it means to be a Christian, but it also accurately describes what it means not to be a Christian, what it means unless and until you've become a Christian. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching to which you've been entrusted. Or the NIV says, uh, the most recent translation of the NIV says, the pattern of teaching which has claimed your allegiance. But either way, the crucial thing this verse says is, becoming a Christian includes and involves becoming obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which you're entrusted. And so throughout, as we go through, I want you to think, is that your working definition of a Christian? Does it necessarily include that? Not only for yourself, but for the people you care about and for the people you minister to. And as we minister and as we do evangelism, do we have this understanding of what being a Christian is, that it includes necessarily and involves becoming obedient from the heart to the teaching that we have, the teachings of Christ that we find in the Bible? The following verses in the chapter in verse 18 reaffirm the same idea. You have been set free from sin, but what else? 
You become slaves to. Literally, you become enslaved to righteousness. Now, in Romans 6, Paul personifies both sin and righteousness as kind of ruling, reigning powers, lords, as it were. And he says, unless and until Jesus becomes your Lord, that he reigns your life and calls the shots in righteousness, that sin, and behind sin, of course, is Satan, is your master, and is really calling the shots in your life. But the truth of the Christian is, you've been set free from sin, and you become slaves to righteousness. Verse 22, now that you've been set free from sin and become, what, again? Slaves of God. He says it the most directly this way. Becoming a Christian means becoming a slave of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Now, all of these verses echo what Paul had said at the beginning of this letter about the central goal of his mission and ministry in verse 5 of chapter 1. And this should be our goal as a church, too, as we do evangelism and as we carry out ministry. He says it is to call all the nations, all the peoples, to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. To the obedience that comes from faith. Paul saw his evangelistic task as calling men and women to submission to the Lordship of Christ. A submission that begins with conversion, but which was to continue in a deepening and lifelong commitment. And again, I just keep asking you, is that what you think of when you think of Christianity? Or have you somehow come to think that that submission and that obedience, they're desirable, they're preferable, but they're somehow optional? They're somehow not necessarily built in to the definition of description of Christianity. I hope by the end of this message you are fully convinced from all the passages we'll cite and a few other quotes from great Christian leaders and evangelists that submission to Christ as Lord, becoming a slave of God and of righteousness is necessarily an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. Paul says it in a different way in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 when he's describing their conversion. He says... You Thessalonians who become Christians, you turn to God from your idols. So all of your own made-up gods, all the own made-up uh, things that you were devoted to that controlled your life and were most important and valuable to, you turned away from those. You turned to God, and then it says to serve the living and true God. And that word serve, that's a verb this time, but it's the same word doulos, which means slave. Now, it doesn't mean slave with all the terrible parts of slavery, including American slavery, all the degrading, dehumanizing parts, but it still means slave in terms of total and complete submission and obedience. And so Paul, when he's describing to the Thessalonians, says, you became God's slave to serve the living and true God. He wasn't describing some subsequent step in their Christian life after they got saved. He was describing their getting saved. That's the thing that I want us to see. It's in the language, of, as we've said before, of the Great Commission, 
What does it mean to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? Go and make disciples of all the nations. A disciple, again, is someone who learns and lives by the teachings of his rabbi, of his master. Well, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you learn and live by the teachings of Jesus in everything. That's why he says, teach them to what? Obey. What? Everything I've commanded. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a Christian. They're the same thing, Acts 11.26 reminds us. Or that crucial passage in Romans 10.9, if you confess, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. The gospel, the presentation of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he did, his saving death, his victorious resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. When a person blessed and helped by the Spirit comprehends that, understands that, and comes to the place, they've weighed it, they've thought it through, they've counted the cost, and they make the declaration, they make the confession, Jesus is Lord. That's when salvation comes. But only then. That's what we need to see. <clears throat> of course, it's not just saying it. In fact, in some of the most striking words that Jesus ever said that we've shared before, he says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone in the habit of calling me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who just says to me all the time, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's obedience again. That's the mark of someone who's truly believed. Or Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus finally says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? That is, why do you keep calling me Lord? And then, bam, and do not do what I say. Now let me just say, and we'll say more about this, because tonight there's going to be a lot of so what from the message this morning that I won't have time for this morning. A lot more application, but we want this morning to be very uh, filled with directions and applications as well. But one of the things is that there are some who push against the idea that Jesus has to be submitted to as Lord, and so to get around a verse like this, they say, well, confessing him as Lord means that you confess his deity. Absolutely. By the time Paul describes Jesus as Lord in Romans 10, he does include the idea that Jesus is God. But my goodness, you confess he's God, that doesn't mean you should be submitted to him? I've never understood why saying that he's God doesn't entail you submit to his authority. He's divine master. The word kyrios, the word for Lord there, never gets drained of its meaning of master and supreme authority. With Jesus, the truth of his deity is added to the meaning, but he remains master. In fact, he's Lord of lords all along. And then the apostle John chimes in as well. 1 John chapter 2. And this is so clear, after a while I'm like, how do we miss it, or at the very least, minimize it? Because frankly, I think the evangelical Christianity that we're a part of does often miss or minimize this reality 
that a real conversion includes a whole soul from the heart submission to Christ as Lord. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. We know that we've come to know him, and that's some of our language, right? I, I came to know the Lord. We know that we've come to know him if, just like there was an if in Romans 10, 9, if you declare Jesus is Lord, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is an immature believer who needs to grow. Nope. Is a what? Liar. And the truth isn't in that person who makes that kind of claim. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked must live as Jesus lived. And so this is the question. When you talk about getting saved, do you include that that's the time that you began to regard and relate to Jesus as master? And that that submission to him was expressed practically in from the heart, not just superficial external but from the heart obedience to his teaching. That's what Romans six seventeen is saying. When you accepted Christ or a loved one you're thinking about, was it a time when they turned from being a slave of sin and became an obedient from the heart slave to God in righteousness instead? When a person is truly saved, not only do they believe the gospel and trust in Jesus as Savior, they also repent of their sins, their old idolatries, and submit to Jesus as Lord. Both. Always. That's what I want us to see and really to feel this morning. Paul in Acts 20, 21, I've declared to both Jews and Gentiles that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance and faith both. Always. And that's what our message and ministry should sound like as people encounter our evangelism. One excellent Bible commentator says, the phrase you have come to obey from your heart in verse 17 points to the time of conversion when the Roman Christians first bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord. That was the time when you became obedient from the heart. That's what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit, and we don't have time for all kinds of aspects of this, including that it's absolutely the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel to bring you to this place. But what I'm saying is the Holy Spirit works through the word, works through the gospel, and brings a person to the place where they see so clearly that not only do they need the gracious free forgiveness of Christ as Savior because of the cross, that because of the fact that he's the exalted Lord, they need to submit to him. They need to be obedient to him. And the Holy Spirit does his work and makes it obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which we're entrusted. 
here then in verse 17 focuses on the initial commitment of the Roman Christians to Christ as Lord, including both their faith in Him and their submission to Him. And Paul uses the word obey here because he wants to emphasize the aspect of submission to Christ as Lord of life that is an essential part of becoming a Christian. Again, we begin to be the slaves, to serve as the slaves of the living and true God, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Now, I want us to see something else for sure, too, and this is important. There are only two alternatives for every human being, according to this verse, and so many like them. You are either slave to sin and to Satan, or slave to righteousness and to God, to Christ. Now, I know that sounds dramatic, but I am just laying out for you what the Bible, including Jesus himself, says again and again and again. No one in this room is religiously neutral towards God. And the only alternative to being a slave to sin is coming to the place, to the work of the Holy Spirit, through the Word, where you really do bow the knee, where you really do, from the heart, submit to Christ. So I want you to know that. And those are the only two possibilities. Unless and until you're under God's gracious rule, you're under the rule and the reign of Him who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I'm warning you that that's the case. And for many of you who've not yet bowed the knee to Christ, you're experiencing the miseries of being under the reign of sin, being under the domination of sin and disobedience in your life. You know what I'm talking about. It's being experienced by you. And I'm telling you the only relief and rescue from it is to be redeemed by this Savior like we've already sung about today. Sin is a power that rules and reigns over every single person outside of Christ. You remember the old gospel song, I'd rather have Jesus? And eventually it says, than to be the king of a vast domain. It says, I'd rather have Jesus than to be the king of a vast domain. That's quaint language, but I like, you know, being a king of a vast domain would be a pretty good deal. But what comes next is why? To be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. If that's what it means, I'd rather have Jesus. And I'm just telling you, if you've never truly come to Christ in repentance and faith, you are in sin's dread sway. You're under its influence. Now, it may be that Satan, one of his tactics is to give you a fairly comfortable life right now. You might figure, well, I come to church more, I'm a little bit religious, and I'm a little bit spiritual. I've never really submitted to Christ the way that he's talking about, but I'm better than a lot of people, etc., etc., and Satan is just giving you a little bit more line and a little bit more line, but he's going to set the hook. That's the reality. That's what we're up against. And after this world, you will face deservedly what the Bible calls the wrath to come. The only alternative to experiencing that final everlasting wrath 
is coming in the day of grace, in the day of God's favor, and bowing the knee to Christ, submitting to him like we ought to have been submitted all along, receiving the free gift of his forgiveness and salvation, and saying, from now on, I've decided to follow Jesus. I just want you to know that's what's at stake. And I hope you'll be honest at least to try to figure out which group am I in. And that you'll study and you'll think and you'll reflect and realize those are the only two possibilities. And there is nothing that we as pastors or a Christian friend would rather do than have further conversation with you to spell this out. I don't want you to make a profession of faith just because you feel kind of emotionally about it in the moment. I want you to have thought these things through and counted the cost and figure out he's either right or he's wrong. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, is, if true, is of infinite importance. If not true, it's of no importance. Forget about it. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And that's what I'm saying from a passage like this this morning. Notice also, though, how practical it is. Because submitting to Christ means submitting to his word. Because Paul doesn't say you became, in this verse, you became obedient from the heart to Christ. That's absolutely true. But he says specifically, you became obedient from the heart to that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. Most of the time it says the Bible is handed over to Christians in the New Testament. This time Paul says... When you're really converted, you're handed over to the Bible, and you become obedient from the heart. That's what Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Colossians 1, he, Christ, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And so one person I think has written beautifully and wisely, to be the church is to be a learning community that seeks together in faith to know Jesus, to grow together in love for Jesus, and to align our lives, mission, and way of being in the world to the inbreaking of the reign of Jesus. The salvation of God is found specifically as the one and the many come under the rule of Christ and participate in this reign. Thus, there's no conceivable split between knowing Jesus as Savior and knowing Him as Lord. Indeed, the salvation of God is the Lordship of Christ. That's the salvation. He's the Lord who saves because of His death on the cross. He's the Lord who saves because He's going to conquer every evil power. He's the Lord who saves because He's going to get rid of every evil far as the curse is found and bring His kingdom blessing instead. The Lordship of Christ is our salvation. That's what we need to see and feel and believe as well. This aspect of getting saved involving submitting to the Lordship of Christ and the obedience of faith, in my mind has been greatly minimized, as I've already said, in our evangelical Christianity today. John Stott, leader of years ago, said, the astonishing idea is current in some circles today that you can enjoy the benefit of Christ's salvation without accepting the challenge of His sovereign Lordship. Such an unbalanced notion is not to be found in the New Testament, he writes. 
Jesus is Lord is the earliest known formulation of the creed of Christians. And then Michael Bird, an evangel- or a theologian in Australia, really recognized as writing wisely and helpfully, and one of the young leaders today says, strange parts of American evangelicalism have even contended that one should not even preach Jesus as Lord in evangelism, but only as Savior. Apparently making Jesus Lord of one's life is something that's not meant to happen until until much later in one Christian's walk. And then he sounds like a young theologian when he writes this, such a view, quite frankly, merits the mother of all theological face palms. In other words, like, what are you saying when you make that kind of claim? Profession of Jesus as Lord is not asking for assent to the mere fact of his deity, but calling people to faithfulness, obedience, and allegiance towards him. Jesus wants followers not fans. The truth of Romans 6 that we've shared, we're sharing this morning, make it clear that true conversion includes submitting as a willing slave to Jesus Christ, our new master. May not have heard of any of the people I've quoted so far, so just a couple more. Mainly, it's the verses that I'm quoting, obviously, that matters. But here's Billy Graham. Most of you have heard of him. There is not one verse of Scripture that indicates you can be a Christian and live any kind of life you want to. When Christ enters into the human heart, He demands that He be Lord and Master. He demands complete surrender. He must have first place in everything you do or think or say, for when you truly repent, you turn toward God in everything. Graham goes on to say, we have the warning of Christ that he will not receive us into his kingdom until we are ready to give up all, until we are ready to turn from all sin in our lives. Don't try to do it part way. Don't say, I'll give up some of my sins and hang on to some others. I'll leave part of my life for Jesus and part for my own desires. God demands a total change, a total surrender. Now to some of you, that may sound extreme. And that's just indicative of how far off some things have gone for a very long time. Others younger might better recognize this name, Francis Chan. Faith in Jesus Christ means believing that he is Lord, according to Romans 10.9. Have you ever thought what the word Lord means? It refers to a master, an owner, a person who's in a position of authority. So take a minute to think this through. Do you really believe and live like Jesus is your master? Do you believe that he's your owner, that you actually belong to him? You've been bought with a price, the Bible says. The problem is many in the church want to confess that Jesus is Lord, yet they don't believe that he's their master. Do you see the obvious contradiction in this? The call to be a disciple is open to everyone, but we don't get to write our own job description. If Jesus is Lord, Chan says, then he sets the agenda. If Jesus Christ is Lord, then your life belongs to him. He has a plan, agenda, and a calling for your life. You don't get to tell him what you'll be doing today or for the rest of your life. Now again, 
We've heard this in some ways before, but we usually, many of us, hear it as, that's deluxe, dedicated, admirable Christianity, but there's this other version of just having him a savior and getting the will I go to heaven question decided. And I'm telling you, there's no division like that. If Jesus is your savior, Jesus is your Lord. It always goes together. So I want to just spell out, and we won't have a lot of time to think them through, but I want to give some sense of what is at stake regarding this rather profoundly serious minimizing or omission of the truth of submission to Christ being essential to being saved. First of all, it raises the issue of the eternal destiny of those who've been led into a false assurance of salvation. A lot of times you'll hear a faith story and you'll hear someone talk about some kind of transcendent spiritual experience they've had. Or you'll hear someone talk about they got kind of fired up or very emotional or moved during maybe a camp time or a religious service or whatever it might be and they threw a stick in the fire and they walked down an aisle. And who knows, the Holy Spirit working through the Word might be involved in those kinds of circumstances and situations. God only knows that for sure. But what God's Word has said is, whether whatever else was going on, this is what has to have happened. That a person has submitted to the Lordship of Christ and become obedient from the heart. Is that part of your faith story? Is that part of your testimony? <clears throat> and so, even in some of the ways we do evangelism, we talk people into a gesture of decision or praying a prayer where their heart's not really in it, and then we assure them that they're saved. If they've never bowed the knee to Christ, they're not. But now they've been inoculated against it. That's serious. That's important. That's what's at stake in what we're talking about this morning. Second damaging, distorting effect is that those same people are now in a kind of spiritual and existential confusion because they sort of gamely try to live the Christian life, but they're not born again with a new nature. They don't have the Holy Spirit living inside them to empower them. Now they're really confused. And I think a lot of people who've been talked into thinking that they were Christians and then they didn't find Christianity to be very compelling and so they sort of give up on it. And I'm thinking, I'm not surprised you don't find Christianity very compelling. I don't think you're a Christian yet. And you say, you can't know that for you, sure. You're absolutely right, I can't. But I can describe from the Bible what true Christianity is. And when a person doesn't even aspire to live under the Lordship of Christ... I'm not going to try to talk them into assurance of salvation. Third, then, it leads to the corrupting of the church with unregenerate members. In other words, now you have people populating the pews, the chairs, making decisions, choosing things, their preferences, their ideas, their appetites, and their interests, and they're not devoted to the Lordship of Christ and His glory. And they don't have born-again hearts who value the things of the kingdom most, but they're casting their votes, they're expressing their influence. It leads to failure to be faithful in evangelism and mission because we essentially leave out half the gospel message and half the gospel call. 
And so instead of faithful evangelism of lost sinners, we slide back into entertaining people. And we call it being seeker-sensitive. But it seems to me seeker-centered can become man-centered very, very quickly. Gordon Smith, a Christian leader, says, and it's kind of striking, evangelism is not ultimately focused on or about the potential convert. Indeed, the irony is that much seeker-centered evangelism and worship is about making the seeker the focus of attention. Everything is designed or adjusted or aligned to make it so palatable for the seeker that he or she would want to come back next week. Is it any wonder that the fruit of this kind of evangelism frequently is church members who assume that they are and should be the focus of attention? We taught them that. Should we not from the very beginning beginning indicate it's not about you or me? It's not about any of us mainly. When we gather for worship, Christ Jesus is the passion and focus of our commitment and adoration. And in mission, our commitment is to witness in word and deed to the reign and glory of Christ. And evangelism is about learning that it's all about Him. You're welcome to join us in worship and in mission, but only if you can appreciate that it's not about you. You're not the focus or the prime concern. You're welcome to join us. But without any illusions or missing the point that it is all about Jesus. So that in everything, as Paul writes in Colossians 1, Christ might have first place. When we evangelize and say it away that reminds people, Jesus is Lord, exalted to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Then things even in church life and mission begin to fall back into place. There's more we won't have time for this morning, but we'll come back to tonight. Deep and widespread failure to be salt and light in the culture because we're not that different from the world and our values and ways of thinking anyway. And a lack of compelling purpose and unifying direction for living as individual believers and as a church because we don't really have a vision of a master and a Lord worthy enough to inspire and direct us. So where do we go from here? We need to recover and reaffirm a fully biblical evangelism and message that shapes everything else. We need to believe from the heart that Jesus is Lord and Master and that He deserves our whole-souled allegiance lived out in practical obedience to everything that He commands. And we must recommit our lives the devoted obedience to God's Word. So we'll say more applications this evening, but I hope from already, and um, you'll think about what this really means. But mostly, I want to say again to anyone here, you're not sure yet if you're a Christian, I hope this message has at least clarified for you what it means to become a Christian, and that you will prayerfully keep reflecting, learning, coming to one of the pastors, coming to a Christian friend, and learning from the Bible what it really means to turn to Christ so that you can find Him as the great and gracious Savior and Lord that He is. And as believers, that we'll know that we want to go deeper, that we've received Christ as Lord, 
Colossians 2, 6. Now we're going to continue to walk in him going further and deeper. Jesus said to people who professed faith in him in his day, if you continue in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Where do you think Paul got the teaching that he's giving here in Romans 6? But if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Is this your story? Thanks be to God. I used to be a slave to sin. But through the working of the Spirit and the gospel, I became obedient from the heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that that one verse can capture our attention, our consciences, our thoughts, and that we'll truly respond in light of it. And that we won't be satisfied until we've honestly thought, Romans 6, 17 is my story. That's my testimony too. And help us again to see, if we're not servant of yours through Jesus Christ, we're a miserable still slave to sin and Satan. Lord, help us to respond to your gracious invitation to take the easy yoke of Jesus as our divine master and savior. In his name we pray, amen.